Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, so don't forget Charlie Campbell, Saturday evening, two sessions, just like we did with Patty Height uh, last month. A uh, little dessert kind of stuff in between. We'll have dessert if you bring dessert. And I, I don't know how this keeps happening, but Charlie Campbell's favorite dessert is carrot cake. And so if you would, uh, if you would please... I'm just teasing. I don't know what Charlie likes, but how could you not like carrot cake? Um, So, my friends, we are in Matthew chapter 13, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. You know, when we, if we finish today, when we finish today, uh, we will be halfway through the book of Matthew, which is kind of exciting. Um, It's only taking us about a year, which is great. I'm having a great time. I hope you are as well. Uh, But we left off in the middle of this chapter which I informed you last time, is sort of a transition in the ministry of Christ. In chapter 12, the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, if you will, the representatives of the Jewish people, they have officially decided, you know what, we're not interested in what you're selling, Jesus, and we don't want anything to do with you. So much so, as it says in Matthew chapter 12, 14, that they then left him in one of these occurrences and went out and conspired how they might destroy him. And that rejection of Christ as God's Messiah is a significant moment in the history of God's work in the world. And as I said at that particular point, it's almost as if plan B was set in motion. And we know there is no plan B's with God, that he's sovereign and he knows all these things. But it's almost as if, human terms, as if the alternative plan of the church was introduced. And this is what Paul would refer to in the book of Ephesians as this mystery that has been revealed, not an Agatha Christie mystery, but something previously unknown, but now has been made known, and that mystery is Christ and his church. Now, God, we know, is not through with the nation of Israel. Scripture makes clear that the nation will play a prominent role in end times events, but for our purposes, we now see that the church era was born. And with the birth of that church era, or what will be the birth of the church era at Pentecost and so on, There is a shift in emphasis when Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, these terms that are pretty much the same term. There's a shift in emphasis from God's reign here on the earth, which you might say is a theocracy, to rather God's reign in each of our hearts and that this idea that this world is not our home. And you'll notice that as we continue to make our way through the book of Matthew, the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, he said it this way. He said, for here on the earth, we have no lasting city, but we seek that city that is to come. You may recall when Jesus was there before the authorities and the events that would lead up to his crucifixion, he said this to the authorities. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. There's a dramatic shift in the ministry now as Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven. And I emphasize it again today. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, you know we talked about it then. Because each of the parables that we're going to look at today are going to reference this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And previously, that would have conjured up this idea of a conquering king who was reigning here on the earth. But here now, beginning in chapter 13, and we do see other examples of it earlier, Matthew chapter 5, for instance. But really from this point on, when Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven, he's referring to something very different than what people would have had in mind. And so with all of that in mind, let's get into our passage today. Chapter 13, one of the longest 
continuous discourses that we have recorded of Jesus. In the chapter, repeatedly again and again, Jesus teaches using parables, and I defined a parable last time as a story designed to communicate a moral lesson. In chapter 13, there are eight different parables that are found in the chapter, and I want you to take notice of something. Let's skim real quickly through the chapter. Look at verse 19. It says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, verse 24, he put another parable to, to them saying, the kingdom of heaven, verse 31, another parable, the kingdom of heaven, verse 33, the kingdom of heaven, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven, verse 47, the kingdom of heaven, you following? And verse 52, he said, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. Is there any doubt what the subject of this chapter is? You can say it with me. Everybody ready? The subject of this chapter is the kingdom. You guys are good. Now, our last study, we looked at the first of those eight parables. We looked at basically verses 1 to 23, where Jesus presents what is commonly referred to as the parable of the sower, and then he goes in and he explains the parable of the sower. And as we saw at that point, the point of the parable either was or is, depending on how you're looking at it, the point of the parable was that the same sower and the same seed could have vastly different effects based on the condition of the soil that the seed is sown into. And again, we know that the seed is the word of God and that the soil represents the condition of a person's heart as it receives the word of God. And so the same message can go forth from the same exact person presenting that message, but it could have vastly different responses based on the condition of the soil. That was the purpose of that particular message, that parable. Now, the second parable where we're going to pick up today starts in verse 24. And so I want to read through the parable in its entirety. It's about seven verses. It says this. Now, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came, and they said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather the weeds? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Didn't I have a bottle of water? Did I have that bottle of water? Right there. Anyone, I'll take anybody's bottle of water. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I don't think this is it. Right. Deer Park, that's good water, as they say. All right, anyway. So once again, Jesus' parable, it involves a sower and some seed. You see in verse 24, a man who sowed good seed into his field. Now in the opening parable, we learned that the seed represented the word of God. In this parable, we're going to learn, all the way down to verse 38, that the seed represents something different. The seed represents the people of God. So you can see in verse 38, the field is the world, and the good seed are the sons, or is the sons of the kingdom. So they represent different things. It's important to follow along with that. The two parables have two completely different points that they are trying to make. As I said, in the point of the parable of the soils, it's to show how men will receive and respond to the word of God differently. The main point of this particular parable is to point out how God will divide true believers from false believers 
at the end of the age. So let's look closely, a little more closely at the parable. Again, in verse 24, it says, The sower sows good seed into the field. Now look at verse 25. Unfortunately, we see that an enemy comes along as well and sows some weeds. Some versions use the word tares. And so we get the name of this parable commonly, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And so an enemy comes along and sows these tares, these weeds, among that good seed. Verse 26 says that the result is that as the grain begins to appear, right alongside of that grain grows up some weeds. So now we got a problem. And in the story, the, the servants come along and they say, what do you want us to do? You want us to go and start plucking all of these weeds or whatever it may be? Verse 28 tells us that. And then notice finally in verse 29, the master instructs them to wait. Don't go plucking the weeds now, lest in the pulling up of the weeds, they inadvertently begin to pull up uh, the grain, the wheat as well. And then finally, his instruction continues. He says, don't do it, but wait until the time of the harvest. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. And then when the produce begins to make itself manifest, we'll be able to clearly distinguish the one from the other. And, and as it says there, some are going to be tossed into the fire and other those, those, those will be gathered up into the barns. Now, just like the parable of the soils, Jesus provides us with an explanation for this parable, which is helpful. It's almost as if it seems, because he doesn't always do that, it's almost as if he seems, hey, let me give you a couple trial runs at this so you kind of learn how to do it, and then you're on your own from there. Uh, whatever, I don't know if it's exactly like that. But Jesus gives us the explanation, and it's down in verse 36. So what I want to do is I want to skip right to the explanation, and then we'll go back and get those verses that are in between. If you look at verse 36, the it says, then he left the crowds and he went back into the house where he was. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Don't you wish you could just do that? Just go find Jesus, sit with him and say, could you just explain everything to me, please? You know, so I'd be set. Nonetheless, seven main either characters or items that are found in this particular parable. The sower and the good seed that uh, the sower sows, that's two of them, the enemy and the bad seed, it's called weeds, that he sows. The field that these two men sow into. And then finally, the harvest and the harvesters. Those are kind of the seven main pictures that we want to look at. And Jesus begins his explanation in verse 37. And he begins by telling us that he, now he refers to himself as he commonly does, as the son of man. He refers to, he says that he is the sower. Verse 37, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now in verse 38, the beginning of that verse, he tells us what the field is. And so the verse says, and the field that the son of man sows into is the world. And the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, is the sons of the kingdom. So we know this so far, that the sower of the good seed is Jesus, that the good seed is the sons of the kingdom that have been sown into the world. Jesus continues in the second portion of verse 38, and he explains to us that the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And then finally in verse 39, I'll read that. It says, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So we know that the, the, the sower of these weeds is the devil, that the weeds themselves represent the sons of the evil one, and then finally, as it says there, also at the end, I guess it's verse 39, it says that the harvesting that takes place, that that is the end of the age, and that those that will do the harvesting, you can see in verse 39, he calls them reapers. 
he says the reapers are the angels. Now let me just give you one other quick point before we kind of look into what's the significance of this for ourselves. And, and that is that Jesus is trying to communicate to us something about these weeds that we may not be familiar with. But there was a particular weed that was very common in there that Jesus was likely referencing that you and I might not be familiar with because we don't have that kind of a weed here. When the, the weed is called the bearded darnel, my eyes are going bad, so for like 20 minutes of my study, I thought it was the bearded Daniel. And I'm like, how about that bearded Daniel? How interesting, or whatever. And then finally I look close, and I'm like, that doesn't say Daniel. How silly, or whatever it may be. So anyway, it's called the bearded darnel. It's a very common weed in that area, and when the shoots first start coming up out of the ground, when you just start to get that little green leaf, it looks exactly like the, the grain of wheat that would just start coming up as well. And so Jesus makes reference to that. You know, you're going to go out there, you're just going to start pulling stuff. You're not even going to know what you're pulling. The other thing I think is very interesting about this particular weed, what's it called again? The bearded darnel, not Daniel. Uh, the bearded darnel is that it has, what it does is underground is the roots of the bearded darnel intertwine themselves with the roots of anything else that is near. And so if you're out there trying to pull up just the bearded darnel, even if you could figure out which shoot that is, the roots are going to be intertwined with the wheat that are alongside of it, and you're going to pull that up as well. And so again, I think that's why Jesus says there, he says, no, don't do it, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them, because the roots are all intertwined with one another. So anyhow, that's who the major players are in this particular parable. But for our purposes, what is its purpose? Well, Jesus begins to answer that. And so let's look at verse 40. I'll read down to verse 43. It says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So the purpose of this parable is to point out that a day of judgment is coming on the world. And that this day of judgment will sort out those that are children of the king and those that are children of the enemy. A day of judgment is coming to sort the wheat from the tares, to use the examples from the parable. Now, a couple things I think that are important to remember. Number one is the field, again, is the world. The field is the world. Oftentimes, folks will interpret this parable as if the field is the church and that there are wheat and tares inside of the church. And then from there, typically, you go to a very intense scrutiny as to whether that person or that person is actually a tear. And so, you know, that person there, they, they take your spot. And when you're pulling into the parking lot, and like, yep, I knew it, tear. She's a tear, you know, look at that. I could finally tell, you know. And so then we start kind of looking for everyone to find out who the tares are in the church. And then typically that begins to spiral to a very judgmentalism, a legalism, sort of a we're the true church. You know, all these kinds of things kind of go from there. And I think it's because it begins with the fact that the interpretation is that the field is the church. But Jesus tells us very clearly that the field is the world. And so the the true believer is sown into the world. For what purpose? So that they may, might bear much fruit. Very different understanding, isn't it? If you're looking at it as the field is the world as opposed to the field is the church. Now, it is important for us to remember the church 
is not the building down the street. It's not this community center on Sundays. Magically, it becomes, you know, the church or something like that. The church is not even this collection of believers. Now, some of you probably think, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Well, let me explain what I mean by that. You can be very active in this group of believers and still not be a part of God's church. The church is not just those that attend a Sunday morning gathering, but it's rather those that have first confessed that their sin separates them from a holy God, and then secondly confessed that only by the sacrifice of Jesus in our place can a person's sin be forgiven. So in that sense, you can't join a church. You have to be born into a church. And I think this is Jesus' point in John 3 when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the church is comprised of men and women and young people from all over the world of every millennia that have received the gift of God's sacrifice and are trusting in that sacrifice for their salvation. And so with that being said, that's the true church. Now we know this. Some people can join a local church that have never been born into God's church. Some join maybe with very benign intentions. I've, I've heard people come and join our church because they say, well, you know, there's nice people there. And I, I've just moved into the community and I want to meet some nice people. And so that's a benign reason. Nobody's trying to hurt anybody necessarily for doing so. Some people join a church to make business connections. We've had a number of people join our church for that purpose, to expand their business and networking and things like that. Some join a church because it's a good place for their kids to learn good morals. So benign intentions, perhaps. Others, however, join the church with destructive intent, maybe to introduce heresy, to fleece the flock, to sow division and discord. And so it's very important for us to, to see what Jesus is saying is during this church era, we need to know this, that the Lord knows those that are his. The Lord knows those that are his. And in that day, that day of judgment, he will perfectly separate the wheat from the tares. There will be imitations. There will be counterfeits right alongside of the genuine. There will be those that appear more Christian, quote unquote, than those that are Christian in the church. And the Lord perfectly knows those that are his and the, those that are posing as his. And so a word of exhortation for us in the church as Jesus is sharing this message to the crowds of people that have gathered there in front of him, a word of ex exhortation is this, search your heart this morning and make sure that you're not a counterfeit that is just gathered with a group of people. Search your heart. Make sure you can unequivocally say that you are a member of God's church based on nothing more than your confession of faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And so the second of these parables, the first for us today, now we move on. Now, I say we move on, but we're actually going to move backwards because we skip verses 31 and following. So let's look at verse 31, the third of Jesus' parables. Jesus says, it says, I should say, he put another parable before them, saying that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all of the garden plants, and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in their branches. Relatively short comparison. Once again, Jesus uses familiar uh, items from agriculture to paint the picture, agricultural items, something certainly the people of that culture would have been very familiar with. I suspect if Jesus was on the, 
seen today. He would use things we're a little more familiar with, like trade or commerce or computers or uh, fields of entertainment or, or things like that. But he, he took something that was very familiar with the people, and he used those things to make the point. And this time, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed, a mustard seed that a man took and sowed into the field, as we see there in verse 31. Notice in verse 32, Jesus points out what many, if not all of his listeners, would have known. We may not be as familiar, but that is this idea that the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds. A mustard seed is similar in size to maybe a, a sesame seed that you might get on a bagel or on a loaf of bread or something like that, maybe even a little bit smaller than that. So a tiny little seed, and his, his hearers would have known when he said it's the smallest of all the seeds, they would say, yeah, we know that. But then Jesus diverts from what was expected, the small seed, to the unexpected and says that this little seed goes into the ground and grows up to be this great tree, great tree so big that even the birds of the air can nest in its branches. That's not normal. The mustard seed didn't grow up into a tree. It grew up into a bush, really. And so the fact that this grows up into a tree so large that the birds of the air are going to nest in it is very unusual. And many interpret this parable as a description of the phenomenal growth of the kingdom of God on the earth. They say, what they say is that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is going to take off. It's going to be enormous, so big that the birds of the air can nest into it. And to some degree, there's a little bit of validity in that thinking, in that understanding. In hindsight, we can look back and we say, well, yeah, that, that really is what happened. Boy, the church exploded on the earth. You, you took 12 men and some other folks there that were gathered as well. These weren't like the cream of the crop of society, just a bunch of regular people. And they go out and they advance the kingdom. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the kingdom of heaven has expanded all over the entire earth. And so to some degree, there's some validity in that understanding. However, I don't believe that's the primary point that Jesus is trying to make with the parable. The context of the parable in the midst of those both that come before it and those that come after it, it seems to me to suggest a different ter interpretation. And rather, I think the interpretation is that this is another description of the corruption that would seek to infiltrate the church. The tree-like growth of this seed can certainly be referred to as an unnatural, unnatural phenomena, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily a supernatural phenomena in the sense that it's something that God is doing. So if you go back and you look at church history, in the first roughly 300 years of church history, the church was on the outs. If you were a member of the church, you were seen as an enemy of the state, but all, and it was very heavily persecuted. Many people lost their lives in those first 300 years. But all of that began to change in 325 A.D. In 325 A.D., the emperor of the, of the Roman Empire, which pretty much controlled the entire world at that time, was a fellow by the name of Constantine. And Constantine was, quote-unquote, I'll say, converted to the faith in 325 A.D. And the reason why I say that is some people think it was a, a savvy political move. He saw the rise of the Christian church that despite the persecution, more and more and more and more people were becoming Christians. And so he decided to convert to the faith and then use the faith to go and continue to try to conquer the rest of the world as let's do it for Jesus or something like that. Other people say, no, he really had a conversion experience. I don't know. It doesn't really matter what I, I say anyway. Uh, but nonetheless, this guy here has this conversion experience. And then what happens is 
the result is you have a much larger, quote-unquote, church. But sadly, along with that incredible growth in size and in power and influence, you have introduced into the church immorality and corruption and sin. Previously, it was illegal if you joined the church. Now it's illegal if you're not a part of the church. And so everyone, yeah, sure, I'm a part of the church. But then they bring all of that immorality, all of that corruption, all of that sin that was a part of their lives because God's Holy Spirit hadn't done a regenerating work within their hearts. And truly, you could say that the birds of the air had infiltrated the church. Again, look at verse 32. It grows so large that the birds of the air come and make nests. Jesus already told us what the birds represent in that first parable that we looked at. And so if you go back to verse 19, he says, When anyone hears the words of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes. He called it a bird uh, earlier on in the, when he gave the, the parable. Now he's explaining it. He says, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And so I would suggest to you, so too here, based on the context of these parables, these birds are not a good thing. And so Jesus is predicting in this parable that a day is coming when the evil one would, among other things, infiltrate his church, where an office in the church, a position in the church, would become one of power and prestige, not that of a servant looking to build up the saints for the work of the kingdom. That the sinful practices of the contemporary religious movements of that day would begin to be adopted into the Christian faith. When the so-called church would become less and less like the original and more and more corrupt and immoral. Jesus predicts a time when religious systems would seek to blend themselves and merge themselves right into the church. Despite the fact that their thoughts and ideas are the exact opposite of biblical Christianity, we would hear, and we still do hear it today, we would hear things instead like, like what really matters is that we're all spiritual in our own way. We would begin to hear things like the most important thing is sincerity. We're all making our way, different paths, but they're all taking us to the same place. These are the messages you begin to hear merged right even into the church. You hear things like the key is that each of us need to discover that inner light and to be able to be led by that inner light. Well, you know what my inner light is? It's a lying, deceiving inner light until Jesus came in and opened me up. These ideas, they stand opposed to the truth of Scripture despite the fact that so many, quote, churches and folks in those churches have fully bought into them. And so I would suggest to you that this particular parable of the wheat and the tares being sown, the tares being sown among the wheat, that it's a parable designed to show that the enemy will attempt to infiltrate God's people. And so it's a lesson for us, it's a lesson for these people to be on our guard. If you know that the enemy is coming, you'll be on your guard, won't you? If you think everything is great, then, you know, you'll just relax. Leave the front door open. No big deal. Be on your guard. Stay alert. Don't be led astray. When I was in college, I began to grow in my faith. And I was keenly aware while I was uh, in my classes or whatever it may be that the messages that I was hearing from my classmates, from my professors, from the administrators in the school, I was keenly aware that many of those messages were not lining up with God and his word that the, the worldview of which my peers or my professors were deriving their thinking was different from my worldview. And so there was this keen awareness of everything that I heard, kind of listening to it and say, well, how does that line up with a biblical worldview? 
or understanding of things. And I think it's very wise to do that. I'm glad I learned that lesson. I think it was one of the benefits I had of going to the school that I went to. So I could learn that lesson at a very young age in my walk with the Lord. Because again, it's a high likelihood that the ideas are going to contradict with the biblical worldview. Now, let me throw this at you though. A place where we might let down our guard, right? You're, you're at a secular university, okay, be on your guard. But a place where we might let down our guard is in the church. Or a place we might let down our guard is if we went to a Christian university somewhere. And we might sit in that room and we might assume, well, it's a Christian university. Everything that guy or that gal is saying has to be true. I'm in a church. Everything that guy up there is saying has to be true, not necessarily. And so we have to be on our guard even in those places as well because the enemy is subtle. And he will come in many different ways and many different forms to deceive. And so we must be on our guard. And again, we reference it many, many times here. But Paul commends in Acts chapter 17, the Bereans, a group of people from a little city called Berea, because when Paul came in speaking to these people, it was new to them. This Christian message was new to them. And it says that they heard what he had to say, they received what he had to say, but then they went back and searched their scriptures to see if these things were so. And again, Paul wasn't offended by that at all. He commended them for doing so. And that's what we need to do. We need to be on our guard because the enemy will seek to infiltrate during this church era. Now, there's a fourth parable. It's found in verse 33. It says, he told them another parable. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Like the parable of the wheat and the tares and the mustard seed tree and the birds, this parable is designed to be a warning. Now, there are some that suggest that the leaven that this parable speaks of is the Holy Spirit, the way that the Holy Spirit sort of uh, makes his way into our lives, the dough, so to speak, and eventually spreads and takes over our whole lives and, and we're changed by the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit it becomes evident in our lives. And, and, and that, that's all true. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. I don't think necessarily, though, that's the purpose of this particular parable as well. And, and part of the reason why I don't think so is because not one time in the Scripture is leaven presented as a picture of something positive. Leaven doesn't appear that many times in the Bible, some like 12 times, and never is it presented in, in a picture form as something that is positive. So let me quickly take you through. Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus 12, the children of Israel are told to make preparation for the Passover, and they're told to get remove all of the leaven out of their houses in preparation for it. It was a practical act uh, representing, if you will, an inward work that God was doing. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus warns against the leaven of the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Mark chapter 8, he warns of the leaven of Herod. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he likens leaven to malice and evil. And so once every time we see it, it's likened to something that is bad, negative, not something that is positive. So once again, Jesus is warning his followers of the attempt of the enemy to infiltrate the church and corrupt its message. Continuing this leaven theme, Paul says this in Galatians. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A leaven is like a yeast. The lump that Paul's referring to would be a lump of dough. And even if a little, if tolerated, it will profoundly change the look and the shape and the texture of the bread that would be produced. Now, I suspect you're familiar with leavened bread and unleavened bread, but I'm going to show you a picture anyway. First picture that we have here is a picture of a bread with leaven. Doesn't that look good? 
and make you want to go to Panera Bread right after here and go get some bread. Now, alongside of it, notice, here's a bread without leaven. You see the difference? Significantly different. As I said, it completely will change the size, the shape, the texture of the bread. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of it you throw there in the flour and it leavens the whole lump. So believer, for the church, be careful what you allow to influence you. Because even a little could change you profoundly. You know, uh, there's a group of us that are gathering and we're, we're digging into some contemporary issues that are being faced with in the church. And it's a group of us young adults, <laughs> us young adults here, I'm in there, that are just sort of digging into it. And, and one of the things that we kind of set as a parameter for ourselves is take some time to look at the, you know, YouTube something, go online, read the actual thing. Not what someone else is saying about it, but go and look at it and spend some time with it, chew through it. How does that match up biblically and all these ideas? But then there was this warning that we gave. Because if you just go and you listen to those other messages that are out there, pretty soon those other messages begin to find their way into your heart and you find yourself adopting those things. And so I gave the example. There's a fellow by the name of Hank Hanegraaff. Hank Hanegraaff used to have a radio program called the Bible Answer Man. And you could call in his radio program and say, I just don't understand. And he would answer your question on the radio. He's great. I love Hank Hanegraaff. It's out in California. So we don't really get it around here. But Hank would, you know, he would study these things. So he would read the Book of Mormon. He would read through the Quran. He would read the New World Translation, Jehovah's Witness Bible, and things like that. And he said, if I would read those things for an hour, before I went home for the day, I would read my Bible for two hours. Just to sort of counteract those messages that are just sort of finding their way in. A little while ago when I did that message on the false prophets of our day, I had spent a whole lot of time, like far more than I wanted to, a lot of time reading into these things that these folks were teaching. And then somebody came into my office and I was talking to that person and I was sharing something. And just like that, I noticed the theology that I had been reading popped to the forefront of my thinking. And I almost caught myself for saying something that was, a, that was being proposed by these, what I would suggest to you, false prophets. It, find its, it finds its way in. And so we need to be really, really careful with that. And I would suggest to you, that's the purpose of this parable. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Be very careful with what you allow to influence you. Let's move on. Verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said almost nothing to them without a parable. Actually, it says he said nothing to them. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, those two verses I commented on as part of our initial study uh, to the, chapter 13. So once again, verse 34, it's not meant to suggest that Jesus never again spoke in kind of plain language, that from now on he only spoke in riddles or parables to the people. That, that's not really the point of it. Additionally, notice how Matthew points out that Jesus' use of parables was a fulfillment of prophecy. He quotes Psalm chapter 78. But we spent some time looking at that. Go back and listen to that particular study as we continue to move on. I mentioned to you there's eight parables in this chapter. These eight parables could pretty much be divided up into two categories. The first four, which are spoken to the masses. The next four, which are spoken specifically to the disciples. If you look at verse 36, it, notice it says there, Then Jesus left the crowds, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him. So the first four are for those that are the masses. The second four for those that are disciples. And so taking his disciples back into the house with them, 
he first explains to them the meaning of the, the wheat and the tares. And you notice there they said, hey, can you explain to us the meaning of the wheat and the tares? And so he does. And we looked at that a couple minutes ago. Skip down to verse 44. This time Jesus presenting to the disciples only is going to give two quick rapid fire parables, the fifth and the sixth one. So verse 40 says, 4 says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Verse 44. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, we can consider these two parables together because they communicate the same message, which uh, I, I would add is commonly mistaken. Often, these two parables are interpreted this way, that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, so significant, so important, that a man or a merchant, whatever parable you want to look at, should sell all that they have to purchase it so that they might be able to acquire the kingdom of heaven for themselves. Have you heard it interpreted that way? Now, I agree. The kingdom of heaven is that important. And we should be willing to sell all that we have in order to possess it. And we should be willing to go to the, to the ends of the world in order to possess it and so on. The problem with that teaching is that's not biblical teaching. That's not how we acquire the kingdom of heaven. We don't acquire the kingdom of heaven by going to the end of the world to get the kingdom of heaven. We don't acquire the kingdom of heaven by selling all that we have or even giving our very lives for this particular purpose. And so I don't think that the man and the merchant is you or I. The man in verse 44, the merchant in verse 45 that goes and sells all that they have to buy the field or to buy the pearl of great price. Rather, we're not the man or the merchant. We are the field. We're the pearl of great value. The one that sells all that he has to make those purchases is Jesus, who left his place in heaven, came down here on the earth, and gave his life in our stead because he saw you as a pearl of great price. He saw you as a treasure that was hidden in a field, and he purchased you for his own. He gave his life for his own. Very different meaning there, but that's the gospel. That's what the gospel means. The purpose of the parables is different from those that have come before it. The purpose of these parables is to show just how valued the people of the kingdom of God are to the king. And again, at Calvary, Jesus sold all that he had to purchase those that would believe. Well, we have one final parable and a final parabolic statement. Verse 47 is the final parable. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there's a pattern to these parables that I think we can see more clearly if we kind of pull back and get the bird's eye view of the parables. Again, there's seven parables and one parabolic statement, just a sort of a, almost like a simile. And so there's eight of them, if you will. And if you pull back and consider them, and I think we have a slide for this where I try to show it, it it's sort of like number one compares with number eight. Number two compares with seven. Three and four go together. Five and six go together. So the form would then be A, B, C, C, D, D, B, A. Remember when you were in poetry in high school? And you're like, why are we doing this? Or whatever. This is why we're doing it, apparently, for this lesson here this particular morning. 
Now, again, I told my wife, I don't think this information will help any of us in traffic when we're frustrated or whatever, but I do think it will help us in understanding this particular parable. So this seventh parable of this series of parables, according to the chart that you look at, would remind us to go back and consider, well, what did the second of these parables speak of? And again, that was the parable of the wheat and the tares that we looked at. And like that parable, which spoke of a time when alongside of the good seed that was planted, so too there would be the seed of the bearded darnel, the weeds, remember? So too then in this parable do we see the good and the bad coming up right alongside of one another. And back in verse 24 and following, we had the wheat and tares growing up in the field. Here now we have the good and the bad fish being gathered up in the net, as it says there in verse uh, 48. The comparison continues. As we saw with the wheat and the tares, when the end of the age came, the wheat and the tares would be sorted out. So we see in these particular verses, in this story, the same coming division, and there either being uh, blessing or judgment that comes. And we read that in verses 49 and verse uh, 50. There are those that suggest that the church is going to reform the world. If we would just get busy and start sharing our faith and everyone would convert to the faith, then Jesus could come back and reign on the earth. There are those that hold that particular eschatological uh, thinking and idea. I don't think it's a biblical idea, though. I do think we should go forth and advance the kingdom of God. We should be sharing our faith with, it, with the world and everyone that is in the world, but not for the purpose of reforming this world. We know that right up into the day of judgment, there will be the good and the bad. And when the Lord returns, he will sort out those that know him and those that don't. As it says in verse 50, right up until the end of the age, we will see that there will be a divide between the righteous and the wicked. And as it says there in, I guess it's 49, that there will be a judgment that separates the two. So the same meaning as the wheat and the tares, this particular verse about the fishing net, same ideas. Now, a few more verses to consider. Look at verse 51. Jesus says, have you understood all these things? And they said, sure, no problem. Yes, we've understood. Now, I have my doubts as to whether they actually understood or not, but Jesus doesn't doubt their veracity, so I don't, I don't think we should as well. Verse 52, he moves right on, and he says, okay, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And again, this isn't so much a parable as it is what is referred to as a parabolic statement. And by that, it's not a full story, but rather a brief word picture, similarly designed to sort of paint this picture to help us with understanding. And in this particular instance, Jesus paints the picture of a teacher. He refers to him as a scribe there in verse 52, who brings forth the treasure of his training and knowledge, both from what is new and old. So it's as if Jesus is saying this, okay, so you say you understand all these parables. Now, take that understanding along with what you previously understood and make it plain to the people that are in your care. It's an exhortation. Take the things you have learned, present those with those that you come into contact with. And that continues to be what every one of us is called to do as well. Somebody has said evangelism is nothing more than one beggar explaining to another beggar where they can get something to eat. We found something significant. There's a very interesting story that I, I've uh, considered lately. It's in 2 uh, Kings chapter 7. And I think it speaks wonderfully to this idea of communicating 
what it is that we've come to discover. The story in 2 Kings chapter 7, it's four men. They're part of uh, an Israeli city. The city has been laid siege to um, by the Syrians. They essentially set up a blockade around the city. And so the people are in that side of that city. They are getting ready to die from their starvation. It had been an extended period of time, and they're going to be dying from their starvation. And so finally, these four men, they're kind of talking amongst themselves, and either one of them or both of them, turns to the, the group of them and says, look, if we sit here, we're going to die of starvation. So why don't we get up and go try to break the siege, go to the neighboring city, and if they kill us, we were going to die anyway. But if perchance they don't kill us, at least we'll find something to eat. And so let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. And so the guys get up. If you know the story, when they get to this neighboring city, the Lord had cleared the city out. It's a really cool story. Read it. Miraculously, he had cleared out the city, and everybody had run for their lives. And there's food sitting in people's cabinets and on their tables or whatever. And all the food that you could want was presented to them, all the drink that they could want, all the wealth that they could want. Everything was there for the taking. And they start doing so. And they're eating food, and they're having a great time. And then finally, one of them turns to the other, or a group of them turn to one another, like, you know, this isn't right what we're doing. All of our friends are still back there in that Israeli city, and they're starving, and they don't realize this good food that we have here. we got to go back and tell them. And so they go back, and they tell them. I'll read the verse to you because it's a cool one. It says, then they said, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Suddenly, the one realized, look, we've been saved. We have to go share this with our brethren. And so can I just ask this question? And I'm asking it of myself, certainly. Should our response to the salvation that we have received of our souls be any different from the response of these four men to the salvation they received from their physical hunger? I don't think it should be. And so I'm, I ask myself this question. I'll ask it of you today. When was the last time that you shared the gift of salvation with another person? Did you do that this week? Some of you, absolutely, all the time. Like, great, you make me feel terrible. Uh, whatever here, I'm glad you're doing so. But really, I'll, I'll turn over here because those people are spiritual. When was the last time? <laughs> when was the last time you shared the gift of salvation? You know, my mom, she sort of instilled in me, get the scoop. She loved a good scoop. You know, hey, mom, did you hear this? Not, we're not gossiping and things like that. But, you know, we always like to be the one that would tell her. And then, like, I would tell her, and she'd be like, I wanted to guess, or whatever. And I'm like, well, sorry. You know, we kind of go through this thing. And so I love to have a scoop. Did you hear about this? Did you hear so-and-so? Did you hear such-and-such? -such? Did you see this thing on the news? Or whatever it may be. And I'm excited to share those things with some people. I'm not as excited to share my faith with people. I've just come to notice that about myself. And I don't know why that is. We have the words of eternal life. And it is very, very good news. And we have the opportunity to share that. So again, ask yourself, when was the last time you shared the gift of salvation with another person? Do you remember a little while back we had Daniel Messiah? He came on a Wednesday night and we broke every Ewing Township code and put like 70 people in that little room that we have across the street over there. Well, Daniel, he said when he first became a believer, he sort of purposed in his heart that he wanted to share his faith with 10 people every day. And one night he got home to his place. He lived in Egypt, Muslim country. And he got home to his bed and he put his head on his bed and he realized he had only shared with eight people that particular day. And so he got up, got dressed again. He went down. He called a taxi 
And he said, take me to the other side of town. And the taxi driver took him to the other side of the town, and he shared his faith from the back seat of that taxi with the taxi driver. Then he got out, said goodbye. And then he called another taxi and drove back to his house and shared his faith with the taxi driver from the back seat of that car because he was so committed to sharing his faith with at least 10 people every day. I'll share my faith with 10 people in a week. And he, shared, he was sharing his faith with 10 people every single day. You know what I've come to discover? If you are committed to it, you will do it. And if you're really committed and you say, Lord, give me an opportunity today to share my faith, the words of eternal life. Not that you go to church or something like that, or I go to this great church I like with a wonderful facade of fake wood or whatever, you know. <laughs> you should come. It's beautiful or whatever. Not, not that. Sharing your faith about what Jesus Christ has done in your life. If you are that committed to it that you would commit it to prayer and you say, Lord, give me an opportunity this week to do so. Give me an opportunity today to do so, the Lord's faithful to answer that prayer. And you'll begin to look for opportunities. And when the door starts to kind of crack open a little bit, you'll step through that door and you'll share your faith with people. I want to just encourage you. What if, what's there, 100 of us here, 150 of us here? What if each of us committed to that today, to praying for that? How many people would hear the gospel this week? And likely how many of them would respond? So I'd encourage you, ask the Lord for the opportunity to share your faith with another this week, to be excited about doing so. Well, the remaining verses of the chapter we actually considered when we were looking at Matthew chapter 11. We skipped ahead and we looked at those remaining verses. So if you weren't with us or if you've forgotten, I'd encourage you to go back, listen to that sermon. We have it on the website on our church app. The sermon is uh, entitled, Not What You Were Expecting. You can go back, you can look at those verses. And when we come together again, Next week, Charlie Campbell will be here, but when we come together again, and I'll be teaching in two weeks, as the Lord allows, uh, we'll, we'll move right into chapter 14, so you can read ahead. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are challenged this morning, certainly with those closing words about sharing our faith. Lord, I pray that you would just reveal, Lord, what, why it is we're so excited to share about this nugget we learned on the news and yet we're reluctant to share about the good news of Jesus Christ. But I pray that you would just give us the joy of our salvation. I, I think about when we were first believers, how there was just such an excitement for who Jesus was and what he was doing in our hearts that we began to share that with everyone. People began to ask, what's going on in your life? And we began to tell them, Lord, giving them a reason for the hope that was in us. And, and Father, would you be so gracious to bless us as a body of believers with that heart, again, perhaps. Lord, you'd fill us with your word and the knowledge of you. And Lord, you'd send us force, forth as a force, Lord, uh, of missionaries to our community and around the world. Lord, thank you for uh, the things we've learned today. Keep us on our guard from the subtle ways that the enemy might try to deceive us. Lord, that we would keep our eyes firmly fixed on you. Lord, we'd make uh, the foundation of our lives the strong and secure foundation of the word of God. Lord, we'd be people that are dependent on the leading of your spirit moment by moment in the lives that we seek to live. And Lord, that everything that we would do would bring you the glory that you deserve. And we pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. 
If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.